Welcome to Consensus Unreality, um, which is a podcast. Um, yeah, podcast and uh, clothing line. <laughs> so much more. <laughs> um, we're recording this brief interruption before we get to our interview with Dan Dutton, um, beckoning you to visit our Patreon, where we have exclusive bonus episodes written content um some video stuff and also some weird ephemera from magical workings we're attempting to perform and have ruined our lives Uh, not mine but (laughs) well mine was already ruined uh yeah come on over and uh we will have more stuff soon hopefully uh even some special merch eventually for the patrons at right. least early for the patrons yeah I don't that's know. true yeah um, we got to get back on the merch anyway this is just an intro let's not get off of that <laughs> tons of uh bonus episodes though so do check that out um stuff you'll only hear on patreon.com slash consensus unreality for only five dollars a month that's how you support the podcast and let us buy more of these books about things that may or may not be true Yep. Here's Consensus the on reality. Show. <laughs> yeah, lucky seven. So, welcome to uh, season two of Consensus on Reality, uh, episode seven. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We have uh, Dan Dutton here. Uh, artist, uh, composer, and a uh, really interesting sort of figure in the uh, Somerset, Kentucky sort of art and high strangeness scene. Um, We're very, very happy to have him here today. So uh, yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Um, thanks so much for coming on, Dan. And you're a bit of a chronicler of uh, Appalachia as well with the Appalachian folk songs and was reading a bit about um, some of the tours that you did one tour in Japan playing some Appalachian folk songs is that correct yes yes um, yeah you know I um, both of my parents were ballad singers and storytellers mm-hmm. they were both traditional storytellers and it, with very very different styles like my father's style and what he did and my mother's style and what she did was totally different but they both sang and they sang together um some this was just when we were working this was not not performance do you know what i mean we sang it when we were working on the farm we'd sing that or just to entertain ourselves or whatever um but that we we sang together and they sang ballads and traditional music so i that for me was a very, uh, well, pretty much everything has been a pretty strange experience. But for me, it was a strange experience. I remember uh, one traditional music experience in particular. My sister brought a friend home with her from Berea College. She went to Berea College. And this was uh, a young woman from Eastern Kentucky. And she played a dulcimer. So she played a dulcimer and she sang a ballad, uh, Lord Lovell. And I, I knew some ballads already from my parents, but I'd never heard that one, and I'd never heard anybody play a dulcimer or perform one. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like just singing as you're walking through the woods. It was doing a performance for someone else. And I, I just totally tripped, like a complete – I went into a complete 
um, other dimension. And uh, I could see the images of what was happening in the ballad as though a movie were being projected in my, my mind, you know. And I grew up in a very rural area. I was born in 1959, so I grew up in the 60s. Um, when there was little exposure to media, I was six years old before I saw a television. Hmm. I heard a radio, but I, I did not. So a, a film or a movie was something that I hadn't even seen at that point in time. But here I was seeing one in my mind. So I, I from that point, I st- sort of began to search out older uh, relatives and people in the community who knew traditional songs or traditional music. And I sort of clawed my way up the the glamorous world of of Appalachian uh, backcountry music to Jean Ritchie, who was my mentor for many, many years. And uh, her family had so many traditional songs, so many ancient songs. And it was primarily their ancientness, their feeling of of a different time that they had in them of otherworldliness, the evocation of other worlds um, that they gave. Um, There was the performance thing. And since I was determined to perform all the time, I was looking for material uh, as well. But it was especially the supernatural. The ballads have plenty of it, you know, and I was very attracted to learning about that, finding out things about it. So. I immersed myself in traditional music, and I was lucky to find some really fantastic mentors, not just Gene, but a number of other teachers that I had. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Uh, is uh, the Ritchie family, is that Green, Green Gravel? Is that right? One of their songs? Green. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gene, she wrote under a pseudonym, too, uh, a lot of songs about coal mining. She had a very environmental consciousness, which was something that I had from very early age, like when I was a child, ecology was my main, one of the main things that I was focused on. And uh, I kind of feel like now that I saw in some senses some of the terrible consequences of environmental damage that were coming directly into contact now, I was freaked out about them when I was little (laughs) and I was kind of like a a, a, you know I was preaching about it already when I was a kid yeah does that connect with your sort of uh I mean because I feel like we both sort of came upon your work through the through like the penny royal thing and your Mm -hmm. sort of your pan uh sort of uh synchronicities and and your uh your works in in that sort of realm uh did that sort of connect with your environmental concerns being as you know he's like yes sort of- yeah i mean i think that they go very much hand in hand yeah. so but you know when uh, it's inevitable i think i'm going to talk a bit about my parents in this my parents were unusual mm. people i think you know if i met them today i would be a little shocked <laughs> at how unusual they were but because yeah. they were my parents i'm the youngest of six children and I came quite a bit after the other children so I I had more time maybe with my parents than they did but um my mom was there were supernatural things that could all around all the time this was a this was a gullibility test Uh, (laughs) she would be like putting you in the test all the time as to how how gullible what you would believe in um and neither of my parents believed they, they didn't accept any sort of traditional uh, religious or any kind of really philosophical or structural 
they really believed that these were things that you need to find out for yourself and do for yourself. And uh, they were in the process themselves of, of finding out and discovering things. So um, that led me to gradually create my own mythologies. I mean, yeah. as far as the environment of Somerset, when I grew up, it was a, a deeply uh, very Baptist, you know, very uh, religious thing. And I, there were times that I was intrigued by that, but I was so much out in nature, so connected to nature all the time, that I think Pan and the Greek gods, even as a very small child, this is something I was drawn to. And it just helped the, the categories <laughs> mm. helped make more sense for the kind of mind that I have, which is very concerned with categories and how mm. they express meaning and art. And also how they shape our thoughts, you know, yeah. how, how, how we place things into various categories is how we assign them to words. Mm. And those words are what give shape to our thoughts. So mm. um, I think Pan uh, was a, a feeling sort of like this uh, benevolent union with nature as a child that's really like that scene in Wind in the Willows, you know, where I don't know if you know that children's English children's book yeah. where inexplicably Pan appears in a certain point in the thing and everything shifts gears from being a, a children's uh, book. That's to Toad and Mr. Toad or Toad and Frog. I can't, I can't yeah. remember the British book, but suddenly there's Pan and it's all like uh, numinous and cosmic. Right. And yeah. it's the world I lived in when I was a child. So um, it, it seemed real natural to me. And as my awareness of, of sensuality of my senses began to develop as an artist and I began seeing um, the sensual attractions of the body, <laughs> mm. that definitely helped. To me, that was more like the nature. It was closer to what I saw in nature a way of expressing that. So Pan started showing up in my paintings and drawings then. Really yeah. from pretty early, I think I was probably, I know I was aware of Pan when I was uh, probably eight or 10, but uh, not until I was about 12 that I drew some kind of a picture of Pan. Yeah. So yeah. from that point forward, it's been an ever widening exploration because it's a theme in my work you know, I have themes and I have phases in what I do. And the, in each phase, the themes open up in a new form or open up in a new way for me. So, mm -hmm. and it's one that has, I, I it, it would occur in my art, it, it, the, the presence the, would be there in the art until finally I got a point where I had made some money and I, I was, I'd done a real successful show in a museum and I had another offer for another show and I knew that the money was going to last for a little while. So I was like, I'll do something I really want to do that yeah. a penny of money, but it's like, <laughs> this is what I've been, you know, really want. So I did a whole work devoted to paying. Mm -hmm. So about a, that was about a two year period, I guess. So kind of short for pieces I work on, but, um, it was enough to dive really deeply into it. And I love that. I'm sure I'll come back at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I feel like 
I relate to that idea of like having these themes or like motifs or figures that you keep coming back to, um, trying to like figure it out from a different angle every time. I like that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, I guess now it's a little passe, but um, the work of Joseph Campbell, the neurologist. And um, you know, he he had uh, one volume that he wrote is called Creative Mythology. And it Mm -hmm. looked specifically at the artists, especially of the 20th century, and how that instead of uh, instead of really uh, being completely connected to earlier mythologies, they felt compelled to to regenerate and create their own. You know, mm-hmm. create a Yeats did that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, amongst others, James Joyce did it. They sure. they created a kind of uh, uh, an other world in which their themes were placed in ways that that managed to fuse their life experiences with mythic experiences. So I mm-hmm. think I was definitely that was that's been a goal all along for me to do those things. Yeah, yeah, and to what extent do you feel like it's uh there is sort of like a, an entity or like a, a a conscious or like primal thing called like pan that you're working with and to which extent do you think it's more of like a an archetype i guess yeah <laughs> okay i'll go up and fisk. It's totally real <laughs> yeah. no it's very much a real thing i mean mm. um reality in one sense is um is very much uh like favor you give favor to what you decide to give favor to Mm. you know those things become uh, larger in the landscape the favored being becomes larger you know the beloved the the most gorgeous being who ever lived you know the beloved looms large in the landscape of your life at the moment when you're deeply in love and um, that's because you give that attention to it you give that devotion um that centers it that way well um you know it's kind of a piss poor lover that is dependent all the time on uh tangibility as a as a, a confirmation of reality and i think so um i think that pan like any truly mythic being is a subtle being you know, and so your devotions are your devotions there. You decide what, how much reality you want to give to this entity, and you will find, <laughs> uh, be careful what you wish for, uh, but you'll <laughs> sure. find that, you know, if you really, this is something that you really are devoted to, I think you'll, you'll make the contact that you're wanting mm-hmm. to make. I don't know. I don't want to sound like a cult leader. <laughs> no way. Yeah. I, but you, I mean, I hope you, you can get what I'm saying. It's oh, yeah. true in art. You know, I choose to make an opera. Suddenly, everything else about my life get, gets about this big. And, you know, yeah. it becomes a tiny thing. And this thing that I have devoted myself to becomes huge. I think about the every aspect of it, every sec, waking second that I can, that I'm not trying to pay bills and plug holes and keep the frustrators away from me who would keep me from getting anything done ever. (laughs) Um, And this thing begins to take life. It begins to get a form. And the more 
people that I can convince to become involved with it or the more artifacts that I can tangibly produce that actually show here is this mm-hmm. thing that can't be touched, can't be, it's it's nothing, yes, yet it's a formless entity and gradually mm-hmm. it gets a very concise form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel like that's a form I impose. I feel like that's a form I discover. Mm, right. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. That's kind of like a wonderful thing in your work too, is that you're sort of reinvigorating these old connections with these deep mythologies and, and recontextualizing them. Um, and I've kind of, I've been, you know, just loosely reading about your operas and stuff and, and the mythology of the stone man and how this was realized through lucid dreaming and the, the process mm-hmm. of lucid dreaming. And I was hoping you could maybe elaborate on how that mythology came to form Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let me um, let me give uh, sort of put a central pole in place in this, so I'll have something to weave my story around. <laughs> um, I there I have a way of looking at my own of my own work um, that I call the Omnichronic. Mm. Okay. So this, this is a little, this is a little bit like that HP Lovecraft book that didn't right. exist, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the Omnichronic is a little bit like that too. I've made a lot of maps of it, but the thing itself doesn't exist. But I do consider it to be actually my life work. I'm only mm-hmm. making a single art piece in my life. There's just one. It just happens that it's got a lot of um, it's got a lot of uh, fields that need to be filled in before you can before you can grasp what it's like. And if you start in the, this thing also has in my mind, it has verticality to it. I, I've, I, I've envisioned it as a journey forward in space that's also a journey upward in becoming conscious, okay? Becoming more artic- articulate to have a more articulate consciousness is what I should say. So um, the at the bottom of this um, is the abyss. Like the abyss for me is like every night, I almost every night, I go and get in my bed, I lay down and put my head on the pillow, you know? And then at some point after that, like zappo, right? You're, you've, you've fallen asleep this is the verb we use in English. You've fallen asleep. Yeah. So I'm assuming that there's some sort of hole involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some sort of dark hole because I don't, uh, when, um, I know I have stayed conscious long enough to feel my body give a tiny jerk right at the point where you lose consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now there's the verb we use for that. You know, it's, it's, oh, it's like your car keys, you know. <laughs> right. I've spent many a dream trying to find that street over there, you know, that yeah. I've lost, somehow I've lost, and that's the same thing. So, um, but then where are you when you're gone, you know? I, I, I know that, uh, before I go to bed, I presume I'm laying in, gonna be laying in the bed all night and everything about how I've arranged my life to believe in my security, you know, my ability to lose my consciousness safely uh, in this perilous world we live in is all kind of set to finish the illusion. Well, at some point during 
the night. Typically, people begin here in this black abyss. Some something starts moving around and having being. There's a is there a point before you become a being? But at some point, you become a being. You're having a dream, you know. And there's your Aunt Lucy, and she's dressed like a crocodile, and you know, a lot of crazy things, seemingly crazy anyway. The theory is, is that our mind is taking memories and bits of visual consciousness and sets of nerve synapses in the brain and collaging them together into something that then when you wake up, you may or not, may or may not have a memory of, but your memory, I mean, there's at least one theory that all these things happen with neural firing happen at the same time. So in other words, there's no chronology. And the chronology of narrative where one thing comes before the other thing, you know, there's a beginning, middle and end to the story. You put that on to your, what you want, something you want it to come together. What you believe reality can be is whether you'll put um, falling off the building or eating the lemon pie first in, in the sequence of things. And also that will determine maybe what the emotional resonance is of the dream itself. So as an artist, this whole construct deconstruct thing seemed to be really intrinsic to what I was trying to do and what I was trying to figure out. So learning to lucid dream seemed like a once I knew such a thing existed, and I'm going to say I was uh, maybe 14 or 15, whenever I found out about lucid dreaming, I was really um, interested in the art of the mentally ill. Mm, like outsider so, art. Yeah. Well, it wasn't yet that. Um, the, 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 this would have been in the early 70s or late 60s. Um, I, in high school, I kept a dream journal. Okay. I, I, it's like a, a note. I had two spiral bound notebooks that, um, every morning in chemistry class, instead of paying attention, I would draw, illustrate the dream I'd had the night before and write it down. So I began, you know, journaling the dreams and the more you pay attention to them, the you know, the deeper kind of into it you get and the more likely you are to be able to have a lucid dream. So um, this friend of mine wanted to borrow them and take them home. So he took them home and showed it to his dad. He was supposed to be a psychologist. <laughs> and he told him that I was a schizophrenic and he'd better stay away from me. <laughs> but he never gave my notebooks back either. So, I mean, I don't have those. I don't have those early teen dream journals, which I would much like to, to read now. Yeah. So, um, but he told, when he told me, he said, my dad said, you're a schizophrenic. I didn't really know what that was, you know? And I was like, oh God, this is great. I wondered, you know, I was really wondering what the, what this is. <laughs> <laughs> so I started reading about it and became fascinated. And the book, the library had one book, it was called Art of the Mentally Ill. Huh. And um, it did have, um, it had a number of, uh, it, it had a lot of examples of art by schizophrenics, which are characterized by some of the same visual tics that um, 
art done by people who are taking LSD mm-hmm. have. I mean, you know, that's as an artist, it's real easy for me to see tessellation, this making of many little right. little dots or little cells of everything, mm-hmm. um, repeating the same, writing the same thing over and over a zillion times mm-hmm. to form designs. Or so um, I was like, yeah, I, I must be really mentally ill. Um, this is great because I figured, you know, I'm on to something, right? So um, then I read um, Three Faces of Eve and Sybil, which is where there's the multiple personalities. I was like, I am getting one of these. Yeah, <laughs> I will have I will have I will have another personality. <laughs> and I figured out how to do that, too. Um, all of this was in a way I think I was trying to um, – find a way into my own brain right way. um traditional religions um philosophies were helping to a certain degree but they all, all of them seemed a little alien to me in some ways just strange i mean i studied and read the bible not because i was at all a, a, a Sunday school person. I think I was probably pretty much a little pagan from the beginning, but <laughs> I flirted with it and I was seriously to the extent of like eventually not only reading the Bible a number of times, but also reading the Apocrypha and reading then uh, the everything. If it's archaeology or ethnology or anything like that, I had a tremendous appetite for all of that kind of material. Uh, but none of them seem to be quite right. Like, I know uh, Tibetan Buddhism was real strong at the time. I was like, death, yeah. Study <laughs> death constantly. <laughs> I wasn't even a goth. <laughs> you know, I was pretty goth. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, I know this is roundabout, but it will help to make sense of how I came through lucid dreaming to begin to make things. Right. Mm-hmm. The first phenomenon I was able to do with that whenever I first began having lucid dreams was sometimes I would dream I was in my studio Hmm. and there would be a painting in the studio that I had not done, you know? Yeah. One I had done, but I had done in the dream world, not Mm -hmm. in this world. So um, I just felt really odd honor bound you know to paint those things in mm. this world whenever i if i saw them there and that's almost like a transgression of the rules right there you know you dream that you're wandering in a dream and you see a bird feather laying on the ground and it's so real you reach down and you pick it up and it's so real and you think i'm gonna hold on to this and when i wake up i'll still have it right sometimes people have that feeling about dreams they wake up from yeah. them and they're like oh i i had it i had it right. i knew the secret of the universe <laughs> oh what was it <laughs> yeah it slipped through my fingers you know so i felt like i was gonna sneak around this right <laughs> and i was gonna move the gold from that side <laughs> over here to this side yeah probably lucky i didn't get in worse trouble than i've gotten into already but i guess it's not done so you never know <laughs> <laughs> so anyways um that led eventually to uh some really full-scale lucid dreams where i gradually began able to control a little bit of what was happening in the dream this didn't happen quickly i'll say that it happened 
it took over a decade um, of work and it was somewhat synonymous with the period of time where I was learning to compose opera. Mm. I was trying so hard. Oh, I mean, I've been trying since I started. I In the seventh grade, one of my teachers played Igor Stravinsky's The Firebird and asked us to write whatever we thought of. And I wrote, wrote some horrible maudlin story. That I don't I don't think it was all that appropriate. But the music itself just really hit me and I came back home and I told my parents, I was like, you have to get me a piano because I'm <laughs> going to be a composer. <laughs> and they did. So uh, I started, it was Stravinsky that got me started. And even I was listening to other things. I was listening to prog rock. I was listening to Japanese music and African mm -hmm. music. Um, I hadn't really listened to opera yet. I was listening to jazz. Um, and I was listening to a lot of Stravinsky and a lot of Debussy. Mm -hmm. And um, I I wanted there to be singing because I'm a singer and I'd started as a small child. I mean, I started singing before I was a year old. So I'd been singing all my life. I wanted to be singing. So once I understood what an opera was, an extended composition that um, tells a story through song, an only song, not like a musical where there's a play and then people start singing. You have to mm -hmm. sing everything. Right. And then, uh, this is it. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't really, the the operas that already existed, I was like, ah. Hmm. You know, it seemed not, not that. So that's, I guess that's a sign of exactly how presumptuous I am because I thought, oh, okay, I'll do it and I'll, I'm going to do it the way it should be done. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I really tried. I wrote, um, I composed a lot. I played every day um, and I worked on it every day. But seriously, I got nothing for 10 years. Mm. Uh, and it, I wrote a lot of songs and wrote a lot of music. By the end of that period of time, which was 1987 or 1988, around that time, really the first music I started composing my own was by taking cassette tapes and cutting sounds into snippets and using scotch tape to put them into loops and then mm -hmm. set more than one recorder going with these little right. loops yeah. break in no time maybe even before they made a sound or whatever so it was like music concrete and electronic music that I mm -hmm. think was maybe possibly what I was going to be doing. Oh, I'd love to hear that stuff. Uh, yeah. There's a little of it. There's a little of it left. I wish I had done better at keeping things. Mm. But in by the late '80s, um, I had this. I had this long, hot romance um, <laughs> that was very. Um, it lasted a long time, and it was created by a long time. I mean, it was like 12 years, I think, mm. um, in all, and. Uh, that it there was a there was a split up a breakup you know the thing the thing the thing collapsed under its own weight and um because i had created a whole creative universe based around it mm. i just like totally fell through the floor mm. um i i uh there's nothing like a full bore 
heartbreak staged by an overly dramatic romantic <laughs> right yeah <laughs> with mystical leanings so that you can always make a deeper abyss you know yeah. <laughs> always fall off of a higher point <laughs> and um i was it was really uh, very tricky for me too because i had promised a biggish show to uh a gallery like a serious step forward in the career i was supposed to deliver 30 paintings and i just spent the two months i was supposed to be painting them arguing with my lover about how this thing was going to end um and uh i had one month to do 30 fair-sized oil paintings mm. um and i realized i had really screwed myself <laughs> but i uh i got it done I did them and they came out really good and it was great because I was so down and so broken that really all I could do was paint, you know, I was like this, I can, this I can do. It was, um, it was joyless painting. That's quite but, a pro uh, prolific run there. 30 and in, in 30 yeah, days. Yeah, 30 and 30 days. It was, it really was something, uh, to experience and they really all had to be a gorgeous too, not mm. not because of the audience didn't see them, but because my heart was on the line. Mm. You know, mm. like I, they either had there had to be some beauty in that painting, or I was going to slash my wrist with a piece of jagged glass or something. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not really. I can't stand pain, so I couldn't do suicide. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, all this happened, and. Uh, I got it done and, and the show sold well and I was kind of, you know, you're then something's happened and you're kind of on the other side of it, I guess, because I fell asleep and I had an extremely lucid dream, which was the opera, the whole thing, the whole dream was the whole opera and it was also lucid. And so it was mortifying to me as the same time I had it because I was like, you must remember every single thing every scene every note every color everything that's in this and you already can't remember right <laughs> the beginning so uh when i woke up i was in the middle of the night and uh, i got up out of the bed and, and didn't turn a light on superstitious it's like any light that comes on will cause it to disappear mm -hmm. so i can still remember something about it and i found paper in the dark pencil and wrote down everything you know that i could remember about it and then crept in the dark across the studio <laughs> to the to the piano and i was able to find um a couple of chords and a sort of like a little motif a kind of uh, a kind of rhythmic motif um and i just if i could play something with my hands i can remember it you know mm. my hands have a memory to them so once I did that, and I remembered them too because the chords were, their structure was strange. Like they had a different logic for why they were made than the music theory that I, that I had known and I had been doing. So um, when I w actually woke up, you know, I went back to bed when I got up in the morning, that was still there. You know, the paper was still there and I could, I, I had written the chords down on the paper too. So I, I, I had that and I started composing it and um, the whole goal then was to somehow or another try to reconstruct 
the dream as closely as I could and its effects as possible. And suddenly then I knew how to compose too. It was like, I understood this piece, how the music was made because it was a dream. Um, I thought, okay, well, you know, you're going to write this for an orchestra. The music wasn't the sound I heard in my ears was the orchestra playing. Um, so I was like, you know, it's for an orchestra. And all that I knew of orchestra music was the music I had listened to, you know, and I had my favorites. I liked, I liked Stravinsky and I liked Debussy and I liked Chopin and I liked Bach and I liked John Dowland. Mm. And that was like the, that's the heart of the classical music flow there for me. It's not that I don't like other things like Mussorgsky's really big too, yeah. but um, that's pretty much the heart of it. And I thought, oh, if there was a radio station that was cool enough to only play the music, classical music that I actually like, not the other, all the other things which I loathe. I mean, you know, there's some music I like and some I don't want to hear. And so if they, there was a station that played just what I like and you took all those scores and you laid them down, you ran over them with a lawnmower and then you started trying to put them back to make the sound of the stream. That's what this is like, you know, because that's how dreams work a bit of this and a snippet of that and you glue it together and this new structure is different and strange and uh, it works for me I was able to compose it and then crazier still I was able to get it put onto a stage and done I mean whenever you get that way people I mean I think the world does kind of open to you they're like he must be crazy he must be crazy right you know (laughs) because you're like you're, where did you come from? You don't wear shoes. You came out of a hill somewhere in, <laughs> in Kentucky, you know, where they're pan and other things are playing around. And now you're in the city and you wrote, you wrote what? You wrote an opera. <laughs> well, that, you know, how did you, well, never mind. What's it sound like? And by that point in time, you, you have already kind of done more than most people who try to approach that. Yeah, or can really do with it just by my novelty, you know. I was like a three-headed calf that, that <laughs> came in, it came into the circus and said, "Look at me," you know. And, and luckily, Thompson Smiley, who was the director at, uh, at um, um, Kentucky Opera at the time, and one of the fabulous, one of the wittiest and smartest people I've ever met, a real old-school carny of opera. And he definitely saw my three-headed calfness, you know, and decided to take me under his wing and make this opera. And once you've made an opera, I mean, what else can the world throw back? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just made a bunch more after that. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's. Wow. I don't know if that really, but the one thing I want to say about that is that the Stone Man forms the first cell in the Omnichronic. Mm. And because it, before that, there is the abyss of formlessness and where there are dreams don't yet have form. And then there's garden variety dreams, the dreams you have every night, um, which you're not aware in. You remember something of them when you wake up or you don't, you know, and you can make a story then, but you weren't conscious in the dream. And then there's this sprinkling of these other dreams. They're like nodes, you know, they're they're at another level because you're halfway between consciousness, awareness, and 
and a dreaming state mm -hmm. where that you're you're not conscious of reality in that way. Just as in daily life, we're not conscious of the dream reality. These two things are sort of separated, but the lucid dream forms these nodes in between. And then I thought, okay, what is the grand theory behind this thing? How, what is the, what are the structure? What's the structure of how this works? And that became the four operas of the secret commonwealth. Mm. I was like, okay, I'll start with this problem and I will work it out and I'll do it in four operas. If Wagner could do his <laughs> right. brain cycle, then surely I can pack it into four. It's nice. At the time, a young, a young artist, it seemed great. Like Gaston Bachelard says this whenever he came to his theory of ele elemental, um, the poetics and how um, in phenomenology, how that they're defined by element elements, elementals. Um, that it's like having four grain bins to put the riches in your life in. <laughs> yeah. These to fire, these to water, these to earth, these mm -hmm. to air. And suddenly, you know, everything's, there it is. You have structure, uh, some kind of structure you can build on. It's, they're, they're slippery steps. They dissolve as soon as you step off from them, you know, onto mm -hmm. the next one. Um, they dissolve behind you. But, um, once I could see that, how the thing was made rhizomatically and the themes that really that started in the lucid dreams at the bottom had their, you know, had their connectors that were coming up into these newer pieces that were being created. And that's where entities or beings start to gel and to take form and then move around in this uh, cosmology that you have mm -hmm created and now i mean i just map out different sections of it as fast as i can go like some kind of caterpillar eating <laughs> all the leaves it can before uh you know winter comes <laughs> so no um, i don't know is that an answer no absolutely yeah. it's it's kind of funny too because i feel like this hasn't been said often but it seems like opera was like a logical end for kind of living the art like the total art right and mm. you know whatever you think of of Wagner um, it seems like he kind of developed this grand thing like uh, incorporating all of this mythology and Debussy famously said it was it was like a a sunset mistaken for a sunrise or something right it's right. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. almost like nobody else was mad enough to try and do that like uh, the opera after wagner actually it just kind of goes right to like modern motifs like aldenberg and stuff right right i mean i think that that at that point um uh, musically it, everything kind of stravinsky talks about how his music's about intervals and then it kind of becomes that rock and roll and, and jazz and, and other kinds of popular music will reassert the power of, of uh, the erotic power of the dance in, in relationship and also a kind of new uh, supposedly egalitarian um, kind of music you know that all you have to be is a teenager with raging hormones <laughs> you know to get it <laughs> so um, in terms of like choosing the opera though if i look back at another aspect of the work because it wasn't all musical to me either this was something which was also uh had a visual and a kinetic 
form to it as well. And I, what I what I found with my artwork all along is that I was constantly running into some kind of wall where people told me I couldn't do that. You know, uh, either uh, I wasn't trained, highly trained enough to do it or that it was wrong or that you shouldn't do that. You know, like I got it in the folk world where that I would alter the tunes or change the words in in traditional songs. And some people in that world hate that. They yeah. can't stand that. They think it's the worst thing that ever happened. Um, well, anyways, before the Stone Man, before I did an opera, I was showing uh, work in Louisville, Kentucky, in the Speed Museum. At that point in time, it was a, it was kind of an old-fashioned museum in a lot of ways. You know, it's stodgy old building with stodgy, stodgy art in it for a certain degree. I mean, it had nice things in it, and the people who, who were there were great. It was a very old-fashioned kind of institution, and um, there was a curator there who liked my work and was introducing some contemporary work into the museum. And uh, she found out I was interested in film and video. I made some Super 8 film and I was doing experimental film and all, a little bit of photography, not much, but a little bit of that, more film than anything else. And I told her about it. She was like, well, have you worked do you do any kind of video work? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to do some. And uh, so the museum commissioned me to do three pieces for uh, the museum. And I used the money to buy the first video camera I had. It's hmm. a big Hunkin VHS <laughs> camera. And I used that to do uh, a piece for the museum, which, you know, in the art world, there's all this artist statements. And if you go to, art school or read some dreadful magazine like art forum you will learn there's this high art mucky muck speak that involves a whole lot of usually french post uh marcusian theory marxist theory you know post-marxist theory or whatever um in it and it's a language it's like a technical language that you learn to you know, I thought it was dreadful, and I still think it's dreadful, but um, at that point in time, I was young, and so I tried to do it. So the thing I made, I called an installed environment, and it was called water. Um, it happened because these kids who came to one of the other videos I'd made, I had tadpoles in the video, and this kid said, what are those? And I was like, oh my God, there's a kid who doesn't know what a tadpole is. I know the next thing I'm bringing to this museum, which is gonna be a video, of tadpole so instead i um i made a lot of videos of uh light hitting ripples of water on a little stream near my house and edited them into just a, a long strip of different they each one lasted for i don't know 30 seconds or something long enough for you to see the rippling pattern and i uh, made three more videos people wading in the water, swimming, water creatures, tadpoles, all that sort of thing. Um, I made a really uh, interesting stereo recording. I had a great field recorder at that point in time at Nakamichi 
um, cassette recorder. And I made a fantastic stereo recording of a little branch, a little stream of water with microphones set so that if you walk through the space, you actually kind of three-dimensionally heard mm. the heard the different parts of the stream as you walked through the thing and I took a synthesizer and dulcimer and some other things down by a little frog pond below my studio and set it up and <clears throat> and recorded I just like try to play along with the frogs and things that were there in the thing you know like they're the soloists and I was the backup musician <laughs> uh, um, kind of ambient ambient trance work in a way maybe a mm -hmm. little bit like maybe a little bit like philip glass or brian eno would become eventually right. yeah you know um mm -hmm. so um i had that going on one set of speakers and had the stream on another set of speakers it was in a theater space i projected this reflections of light huge on a big screen so the room was full of sort of like moving dim moving lights around everywhere I got all kinds of water plants, iris, cattails, reeds, rushes, and I I do ikebana. It's like a Japanese kind of art form using plants to arrange it. Mm -hmm. So I did these big ikebana arrangements with water plants, um, put small little TVs that had all these water activities around, had all this water sound going all around in the space. A big piece sheet of plastic with a big giant lump of clay in the middle of it um and a lot of podiums with gallon jars that had frogs tadpoles uh dragonfly larvae mud puppies all the things that live in small bodies of water which i caught early on the morning of this performance put them in your jars in the trunk of my car packed with ice, drove two and a half hours to Louisville, installed them in this room. They were there for uh, six hours, I guess, then repacked them all, drove them back to the country and released them again. So no creatures were harmed <laughs> in the process. No, yeah. I'm sure they were freaked out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, I know this is involved, but, um, in this darkened theater space, people, quite a few people came to the piece and just wandered through it, you know, trying to figure out what it is. One of these contemporary art things where you're, it's an installed environment, okay, called water. I think I'll wander through it. <laughs> and um, some people stayed in it for a while. You know, I was sitting in the thing watching them. I didn't talk to them unless they stayed for a while and seemed like they were really into it. And then before they left, I didn't want to interfere with what they were experiencing, you know what I'm saying? So I waited until they started to leave the theater and then I would stop them and introduce myself and tell them that I was an artist and ask them what they thought about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know this one businessman who came in with a briefcase and sat in there for a while a lot pretty long like he stayed about you know 15 20 minutes and then as he was leaving i asked him what he thought about it he said you should market this for stress <laughs> <laughs> i thought oh huh so um then there were four people that told me the same story and this was a personal story that they told to me um and the story kind of went like this. Um, whenever I'm depressed, angry, upset, 
disturbed. Name your negative emotion. Um, there's this creek, lake, pond, stream, river, place that I go to and I sit or walk or I'm there and my my troubles or my problems go into those soak into the water and flow away from me and then I feel better. I mean, no one said it quite like that. You know what I'm saying? But each one of them told me the same story and I thought, wait a minute, there's a narrative embedded in this thing, you know, which is really just a set of phenomena that is taking place there. This is an opera. All I have to do is start, put the singing in there and the thing is already happening, you know, because mm -hmm. people are projecting the story into it, not taking the story out of it. They're experiencing it like an environment that evokes a story that's familiar to them. And that was really my approach to making the operas. Then I was like, uh, this is not something that I'm telling them or whatever. I just need to figure out how to make a thing that will get their inner story to gel in it, you know, so that they will have this kind of emotional experience. And it was a matter, I guess, of learning more and more tricks <laughs> how to do that. Mm -hmm. That's an elaborate method of extraction. <laughs> creating a, a, a complete installation to uh well someone's someone said it about one of my art making projects is that i seem to be a genius for making things as difficult as was humanly possible <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, i i don't know i mean you gotta do what you gotta do right i mean they say that there's no level of care which is too um uh, too high of a degree for the making of a masterpiece and uh, that i feel the same way about that as i do about the pan thing it's like the devotion the devotion thing you have to think about how much you're willing to devote to the making of a thing like what if you have to what if what if it causes you to have uh to break with all of your friends you know Mm. have to well, I mean what if that's what it does to you hmm. or what if it makes you so horribly poor that you lose every every physical thing that you have oh no not that much I don't want to be that much of an artist right I mean it's like Johnny Mitchell's song about Van Gogh you know she has on Turbulent Indigo I don't know if you know that hmm. but she, she talks about that how that you know People want to, they want to have Van Goghs. They want to see them. They want to be Van Gogh. Every painter wants to be as famous as Van Gogh. So everyone will buy their thing. But those people, he would have pissed in their fireplace, you know, like Jackson Pollock or been some trouble. You know, you can't invite Van Gogh to your cocktail party. That is a, that doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, and people don't want to suffer that way. Like being crazy is not fun all the time. It might be fun sometimes. Yeah. And making art is not fun all the time. Sometimes it's really horrific. I mean, sometimes it is very, very, the trials that your mind may have to go through and the conflicts you will come into with society as you attempt to, to do these things which are very unique to your personal experience very individual to your own being come in conflict with society's mores and rules and genres and everything else. I mean, 
you wouldn't believe how people how much trouble I was given for making an opera. The classical music world, some of them hated it. They hated it. Not because they ever heard it at all. They did not want yeah. someone who did not go to school to mm. learn music to compose an opera for an orchestra. Like the, that just shouldn't happen mm. in some people's, from some people's point of view. And, you know, really the composing, the thing for the learning how to orchestrate and learning how to compose for an orchestra was only part of the, of the difficulty of making the Stellaman because there was the visual aspect that had to be taken care of, which was a new type of thing that doesn't really work very well on traditional stages or with, uh, all those things were really, really difficult. So you need to that to be able to do that kind of work i think you need to be able to do to be clear about how devoted you're going to be to it mm. like how much of an artist are you going to be are you willing to do total sacrifice here <laughs> or a partial sacrifice or is this going to be a weekend thing for you if the money falls through and it is times get hard are you going to quit are you going to give it up and mm. I guess maybe to, to put some perspective on that, that was, this sounds a little defensive on my part. And at the time it was defensive. Uh, there were people I knew at the time who were artists working in the state of Kentucky and in other states too, for that matter, who did art by writing grants, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. They went to school and they learned how to write a grant in school and, and they decided they were gonna be an artist. So they write a grant to do some art thing you know make an opera or just not make an opera but you know what i'm saying to do something um and then if they didn't get the grant they didn't do it <laughs> and i was like okay no this can't be real because <laughs> <laughs> right that's usually a year in advance i was like so i'm gonna promise that i'm gonna make this thing a year in advance uh and I mean, think about it if you were going into the realm of Pan and you really were going to be serious, not condescendingly looking down at his folklore, but saying, what is this mysterious thing? What might happen if I expose myself to it in some way? What kind of art will come out of it if I do this, if I put myself in this sketchy place? And that's where I usually look for those things too, is in very sketchy places. Hmm. Um, well, if you don't have that uh, sort of snapping turtle, I have locked onto this thing and I'm going to make this thing. And no, nothing will stop me. Nothing will undo me. You have to kill me. <laughs> then my ghost will do it. You know, you just have to really steal, steal yourself against the world. Um, if it's going to be something like that, where that it's kind of kind of hard to pull it off, you know, kind of hard to convince the classical music world that um, this is barefoot waif that comes out of the woods with a stack of papers has got an opera yeah. to make, or anything, you know, a show in a museum or whatever. The world looks to see how will this sell, mm -hmm. you know, and what genre is it? Kentucky Opera actually said, we hope this will reach out to people who like country music. I thought, <laughs> oops, I mean, 
no, it won't work. <laughs> but that's how little they knew about country music. Thompson, I mean, come from Scotland, and the only opera was what he knew. He had heard of country music, and he had just assumed it was something the peasants did, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, like uh, worlds colliding and not yeah, they don't understand right. each other at all. You also yeah. had to realize in any one meeting how few paradigms you can challenge. I mean, there's a limit yeah. to how much bullshit you can bring up in one meeting, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, even just the dreaming thing, uh, I'm not sure in the Stone Man, like one of the things that I did as part of that was every night before the opera play, they put, there were seven performances in Louisville and five or in a, on a tour around the state. I would come on first in a suit <laughs> and uh, I would explain what happened to me, how I fell asleep when, you know, one night and had this dream and how <laughs> how it came about because the opera felt like without me doing that there was no way in hell anyone would know what, what was going on right. you know mm. what on earth was going on uh, yeah and that really i mean i guess at the time i was just like oh everything is always so hard but um in retrospect I didn't really think at the time of how different what I was actually trying to do, how alien it was striking all these folks, you know? There would be one thing, it would it sounded like classical music, you know? But then the visuals would be doing this strange thing or the words are saying something. The fact that it was a tip to make a simulacrum of the dreaming state in an actual room so that if you listen to it you can't tell whether you're dreaming or not dreaming if you pay attention to it the, the boundaries will blur um that was a little much for everybody yeah it was kind of yeah. much for everybody i i really appreciate that concept in your work though and and hearing you speak about it it seems like the sacrifice has been rewarded by living in, in a magical reality, you know, and, and really not being able to decipher the, the dream self and the, the waking self. You know, it, it does, um, the interest is now in the uh, occult, in that, I guess, the classic meaning of that word, as, as of the things which are obscured, you know, <laughs> the things behind the veil or whatever. There is a real interest in that now, and there's some thought maybe amongst you can see parallels to earlier times. Like if you go back to uh, World War II and the Order of the Golden Dawn and you see, you know, how that sort of the changes in society suddenly mm -hmm. cause people to turn and say, what is the mystery? Uh, maybe the mystery has the answer mm -hmm. to yeah. un unsettledness. And we have a similar thing now where people are, are like, uh, you know, they're, more people are beating the bushes looking for Bigfoot than there were back in the seventies. I can tell you that. Uh, not that people didn't do it, but now there's a lot of people who are doing those things and who are very interested in it. And Penny Roll is an example of that, and mm, yeah. an example of how popular culture has realized, oh, this is something, something's happening in people's lives. So let's take a look mm. at it. And I know that there, you know, there are people who want to be um shamans or psych psychonauts or things and wizards i mean i've been accused of all of these 
things. And I guess I've done them. I don't know. I mean, linguistics is a whole other aspect of art that's like a work in progress. So I'm, as a storyteller, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this stuff as, just as fast as I can, you know? when you have to keep up with subatomical particle physics and learn how to draw at the same time, it's, it is a little challenge to get your language right. Is it environmental installation or is it an opera? Or is it uh, some kind of breaking of the veil between dreaming and co waking consciousness? Uh, what is this thing that's happening? A lot of people are in searching for that but growing up with uh, traditional storytellers and being exposed to a lot of stories about the things that people are seeking now and then gradually as i began traveling and running into the different people who helped me along the way um having some of those experiences that some people seek out very much uh every time that i kind of run into that i want to say you know what? Run. Turn the other way and run <laughs> as fast as you can because you think that you want to have this experience, but you possibly, it's quite possible you really don't mm -hmm. want to yeah. have this experience. Um, for me, there was a definitely uh, a point in time with the lucid dreaming when I was driving home late at night um, in the western part of the state. And I'd had a real weird experience where I was out there doing art and ran into to some high strangest weirdness anyway. So I'm driving back home along the same way I had driven earlier in the day, but in the dark going back. And I noticed my hands on the steering wheel, which in lucid dreaming, that's what I had been doing. The first conscious act, act I did was to learn to look at my hands, mm. you know, pull them up in front of me and just look at them. And that was usually about all I could do then the thing would go crazy, you know, but one step at a time, gradually I was able to do more. Gradually I was able to actually do some things that I wanted to do in the dream world that I can't do in this world. Like mm -hmm. uh, swim underwater, breathe underwater, be able to swim underwater without, without drowning. You know, mm -hmm. I managed to pull that one off and it was real hard. It's hard in a dream to go even, <laughs> deeper into something mm. yeah but uh, that night i saw my hands on the steering wheel and i was like oh fuck um there's no way anymore to tell you mm. know i can't be sure because i had had some dreams where i couldn't wake up you know I, they would be mm. lucid and i would at first if there would be some kind of uh something really crazy and start happening like a, a giant fire-eyed jaguar would scream right behind me or something i would be like up up you know it's just like push up with my head and i'd wake up you know mm -hmm. usually torqued out some crazy way because you think you're standing in the dream and then you're laying down and when you wake up it's like there's a crazy g-force thing that happens uh -huh. to consciousness but um i knew that night i was like you're not going to be sure about anything anymore what does that do to your life? Mm, right. And mm. you really, I mean, you can't be absolutely sure that any moment is an elusive dream. So whatever kind of feeling of steadiness or firmness you had from believing in reality as a, uh, something which wouldn't turn into something 
completely different at any moment. You can just set that aside and learn to live in this new yeah. reality where that you can't be sure about things like that. Yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. That's a big sacrifice. That's a big sacrifice that one way to make. You right. Know? right. Yeah. Do you uh, feel like that's a fair do you feel like it's a fair trade uh, for the sort of uh, access that you've gained to like control within the dreams that now you're like, is it uh, like a poetic sort of sacrifice? Do you think? Jesse and I were having this conversation earlier about, about um, selling art and um, people who like to, to bargain, <laughs> like, yeah. Say fifteen hundred dollars dropped to twelve. The other some person says seven hundred, and you wind up at eight. Finally, this is what the selling price is, and he loves that, and I know people who love it, and I hate it. You know, like I just yeah. don't want to prolong the ordeal. I just want to say one thing, and that <laughs> that's it. You yeah. know, uh, there isn't all this uh wobbling around so right. i want to say now in terms of whether i got a fair deal by giving up reality that uh, in fact no I, there's some other stuff i want <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah. uh, no um uh, actually i'm happy about where my work is at right now mm -hmm. even as it's interspersed with you know there are periods of of despair whenever you're not patient yeah. Like if, you're, if you're patient, you don't you don't have tend to have as much despair um, in art making anyway. Because like I I don't really have a complete control over the way the the kinds of the art that I make. I don't have control of it. They are nodal points sure. where a lot of a lot of information will suddenly come into focus in one object, like one painting mm -hmm. or one piece of music suddenly this phenomena motif and that's been on a trajectory over here and this one that's on this side that's been on a trajectory here and that along with um uh, uh you late at night you're driving and you see uh what looks like a small flying alligator fly across the front of your car um all these things happen to you at one point in time and there you are you're at a point where you can make a thing you've got enough to to make something out of it because yeah. all these things have come suddenly they've all lined up like a lot of times i think about my art things like playing the slot machine which i really haven't done that thing you know but you know it's just like put your coin in turn the thing and it's, go, and it's like cherry lemon orange apple you know or yeah. cherry 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 and all the money comes out that's yeah. what my art making is like. <laughs> sure, sometimes, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, uh, like a yellow sunflower, a red morning glory, and a blue indigo bunning strikes the first memory I had of art, which was realizing what the primary colors were on my third birthday. So you see what I'm saying? That it was helped out by the fact that I happened to, a friend had given me a indigo bunning and i froze it and kept it in my freezer in case i needed to make a, a painting that had an indigo mm. bunning in it hmm. but there it was i happened to see the thing and red yellow and blue were in it and i was like it's a primary painting i can do this thing but that door's been opened to me. so the fact that those doors open to me i feel like that means i put a good foundation 
in place with all the other work I did before and whatever sacrifices or devotions I did. Great. I mean, luckily we have no memory right. of our pains. We only have dramatic exaggerations of the stories of them. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's an amazing oh, yeah, warning of the occult. I think, uh, is not, you know, that, <laughs> the desired effect might be something so horrible. I think it's that instead you're going to have to deal with a whole new superimposed reality and with yes. a, a different architecture. Um, yeah. You and, know, right. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, I saw this, I saw a, a Facebook friend had made a post and they, and she mentioned uh, black dogs. In it. Okay, so this is a, a folk motif even in traditional lore in the British Isles and possibly other, all kinds of places undoubtedly where large black animals at night become a problem to the human consciousness. <laughs> I think there's quite a few of those, but the black dogs are, are set unto themselves. And uh, the group of people that were discussing it, and suddenly I, I realized, I was like, oh, in fact, I, I did see a black dog myself at one point in time. That's the interesting part to me about uh, Penny Royal and the in interest in these kind of phenomena, my, my life has been focused on making art. The fact that there was all kinds of crazy shit happening around me all the time 
was not actually, uh, I mean, I just took that at the same time that I was taking all the other stuff. Like people were acting strange and then strange creatures were appearing too. So it all just seemed weird to me. And I didn't really red flag it or, you know, a lot of things happened that I just, I know that I filed them in my consciousness. This, this tarot card just got played. You know, I just saw this kind of a thing, but now's not the time when this means something. So, you know, all right, it's there. It's, it is in my memory. Um, and we'll see what comes about of it. And my, this friend asked, did you, did you see it? A black dog. And I was like, yeah, I did. You know what? And it was not pleasant. There was nothing pleasant about the experience whatsoever. Um, I was driving home late at night from a friend's house. He lived back in a little holler and was coming along a narrow little road along the edge of a cliff-like thing. <clears throat> there was a slight pull-off, and as I was coming up to it, I thought, is that someone's calf that's out there in that? You know, it's like a strange place for a calf to be, like a... Uh, uh, Angus calf to be alongside the road on this this little pull-off thing. And then whenever I started getting close to it, there wasn't a lot of room either. I mean, I went right, my headlights went right past this thing. I was like, that isn't a calf. That is a, some kind of a huge dog. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I was going past it, you know. So I like look, you know, in my behind me and in my rearview mirror and I see this thing is running chasing my car too as mm. well so I like put the gas pedal down I don't believe in internal combustion engines as well enough to believe that it's going to get me the fuck out of there you know yeah. I, it was like the most horrible nightmarish feeling that you could possibly have but it was not a yeah. nightmare do you know what I'm saying there yeah. I was I was yeah, driving sure. the car and the thing was gaining on me um, mm. as I was going up the hill and I'm like, I mean, how do you, what kind of framework do you put that into? And how do you, how do you sort it? Um, for the person that happens to you immediately, if you tell some other people, like now I can tell it all because I've been through so much. I'm so old and so crazy. It doesn't matter anymore, <laughs> right? Um, but at the time, if I told that to many people, they would either try to argue with me about what I saw and what I didn't see or what was there and what wasn't there. Or they would just think that I just made up a lot of stuff to try to bamboozle them somehow into believing something that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a, that is not a good way to relate to other people. Yeah. <laughs> so I just didn't <laughs> talk about it. You know, I didn't talk about a lot of those things and because i maybe that's a good thing they say uh, they almost don't like people talking about their stuff anyways right but, um yeah but you know i can't help it i'm a blabbermouth i talk all the time <laughs> i love to talk so you know i'm constantly telling telling these stories i'm also constantly trying to figure out what actually happened myself and trying to explore every type of science that there might be that might give some clue as to why these things happen, whether they happen in the reality of the mind and have no corporal reality to them, 
or whether they at times have corporal reality and then don't have corporal reality at other times, or whether I whether I fucked myself up with the lucid dream or the, by practicing lucid dreaming until I couldn't tell whether I was asleep or awake, um, yeah. or, or whether, uh, like my friend's father said, I'm a schizophrenic and people should stay away from me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I am trying to discern which of these things might be the best thing, but ultimately for me, it doesn't matter anyway because I did devote myself entirely to becoming an artist and this is what becoming an artist for me is like. Mm. So, yeah. so uh, you know, whether it's real or not real does seem a strange question. Mm -hmm. and, mm a struggle <laughs> right but i yeah. do you know i like to have fun so uh and i do have a lot of fun and i enjoy the sensual world very much so i have to say life has been pretty good <laughs> yeah so yeah, i love that so how is um how has been navigating the sort of like not in person stuff uh, affected your work have you been shifting uh you know different ideas of presentation and stuff uh well there have been a lot of shifts in my work in the past year i have to say maybe i i felt sort of feel like in some ways i've had more insights into some of the processes than in a short amount of time than i ever had before but i've kind of that seems dangerous to say so if i say that maybe you'll dry up you know <laughs> right yeah i'm super wary by this point i'll put it that way so um i i was very sick last year i i assume that i had covid like i avoid uh all of the medical world entirely and i've attempted to be my own physician in my life i'm an herbalist and so i'm constantly experimenting on myself to the extent i'm a horrible patient so i mean you know the herbalist gives instructions about what to do and then the patient doesn't do it which is the way so i my my learning has been spotty i have practiced on friends you know so uh, <laughs> which is questionable too but have had good results um with that so I didn't go and, you know, I didn't, I didn't intersect with the medical world at all. Um, I, I, I struggled with it because I had a very asymptomatic, asymptomatic um, form um, of it. It was just inflammation in the chest and um, it sort of felt like having a heart attack. It went from, mm having that whenever I would exert myself and I thought that's my heart oh no I was planning on being perfectly healthy for my entire life and this has screwed it up now I have heart problems or possibly liver problems from drinking like a fish so uh, uh, I thought okay uh, I'm not going to do anything about that I'll try to I'll try to, to live a better life and hope that it will last and then it just I would be having like it was the equivalent of having four or five major heart attacks a day. I never knew when they were going to hit. It just was horrible. And it lasted for about six months mm. that way. It wasn't sure. It was long. I didn't cough or anything. I didn't cough until I started getting better. And then I coughed for about eight months. 
I guess my lungs. I regenerated my entire lungs and coughed the old ones out. That's <laughs> what happened. It was filthy. Yeah. It was a filthy experience. But it was also so um, such a downer, so depressing, so sneaky. I would think it was going away maybe, and then it didn't. Um, and I, like I say, I had been pretty convinced of my – I've led a, a very healthy life in spite of – my sort of like wild, wild ways. Like I've tried to grow my own food for the most part and eat it really healthy and uh, very, I've been very active in my life, traveling and hiking and climbing and running all over the place. So I never was sick. I've never been sick. I've never had any problems until this past year. And it's real insistence really threw me into a concentration of mortality you know mm. it was a, i was convinced i wasn't going to survive it you know, very convinced so i was like okay so this is new you thought you were going to have until at least your 80s i had always planned that i would do my best work when i was like 85 or something because mm. it it requires a broad platform to build it on you know the experiences and all the four senses and all of the different types of artistic media that you can use to approach those things like this is going to take a long time to learn how to do enough of each one of these things that you can begin to get this new kind of art form to appear and so i was like that's fine that's great uh i'm i'll just keep doing this until i get to be quite old and then i'll have be able to do everything it's very naive view but uh, kind of a good view to have about it and suddenly i was like you know what you're not going to have time to make another opera or even you know to do some kind of big show of paintings or you know the different ways that you wind up presenting these things to the public mm. what form they come in um i thought yeah you know it's no longer a matter of whether you can do you'll have enough time to do eight more of them or seven more of them that's how that's actually how obsessive i could be about the creative thing i want to have i want to have plenty of room to do what it is that i am trying to get done and the thought that i wasn't going to be able to get it done turned me instead into okay so how many unfinished projects are on the table right now like you're not going to complete the omni chronic obviously it's like a it's like a tower of Babel that made it up three quarters of the way up and then got hit by the the lightning. So now what are you going to save from the archives of this and how are you going to make it make sense? And that was very overwhelming too, you know, and all during this period of time, I, I continued working, you know, I was still creating and making things. I hope they're not tainted by my, you know, by my sorry state of mind that I had during that period of time. I don't think they are because I do think that those two things are kind of separate. Mm. I, I don't, you know, I don't like a moat all over a canvas or I don't approach writing a song that way. It's not at all like that for me. So um, it wouldn't be something that, if that experience turns itself into an artistic form, I expect it would be further in the future but more likely it just changed the windows around how i was looking at things yeah. so whenever i actually got better and you know i feel uh like a uh 
healthy being again. I discovered that I was kind of a new being. And uh, some of the paranormal experiments that I got involved in because of, of uh, because of working on painting Royal and, you know, different things that happened after that. I, um, I did this one thing with friends, two friends of mine, um, Jessica and Kevin called the Gainsfield experiment. Do you know that thing? Uh, no, dude, Dave, no. Mm -mm. Well, Nathan and I were working for the, on the fawn. We had this idea, you know, I did the fawn originally as a dance performance. I was going to compose it and direct it. And I wound up ha having to dance in the thing myself because I couldn't find anyone who could handle the pan, the turning into pan thing that it involved. The becoming a fawn thing just seemed to make people go haywire. Actually, that whole show so interesting all the things i've ever done controversy just boiled out of the word it didn't i i hadn't done anything i'd only picked the title of it and it all it caused amazing controversies to start up around me but um when i was working on uh, working on the working on the fawn and uh, kind of trying to to uh realize that thing when i look at it now and i look at the perspective that i have now on these things the things that before did seem to be somewhat separated from me now are very immediate and very real um i had time during the time that i was ill to um go inside myself and because there was the quarantine as well People weren't coming around the studio as much. I mean, Jesse still, we were coming, we were working on things together. And there were a few of the people came, but basically no one was around anymore. And I was not, I did not feel, the only bad thing about all that was that I did not feel well. But as far as the solitude and the isolation, that was great for my creative mind. Mm. And I took up some things that were, philosophical questions i guess that's what i focused on trying to to set my the final period of my artistic life in order i thought i want to square away some of these philosophical questions that i have about things mm -hmm. especially once it had started with the fawn and that work which was about changing um, your body perception and here i was faced with a body which was going haywire on me and i thought oh i need to bring this i need to bring this work to bear one of the interesting things about that was um i found that i could understand uh i could communicate and understand animals um this is one of these things i may say people are just like god you're so full of bullshit <laughs> um but um it's something that i realized that being around other people had uh, corrupted it mm. and me. That as a child, I was able to communicate with animals pretty directly. I believed that I could, and I did. Um, and I realized, oh, this is, uh, I can do this now. And the Gainesfield experiment is one where you put on, uh, 
put on headphones and you have white noise that you can adjust however loud you want it. So you can hear nothing but white noise and blinders so that you don't see. I mean, you can do or not do these very steps, but I chose to do all of them. I laid down, I put on the blinders, I put on the headphones, I set the white noise on. And then the deal is, is that you can talk and tell if you have any visual experiences, then you mm. describe them and it's being recorded. Mm. And so the paranormal part of it comes from someone nearby, but not nearby enough for you to hear, which can't hear anything anyway because of the white noise, reads a list of questions and that's recorded too. And so the time codes for these two things, anything you may envision as you're in this kind of isolation chamber of sorts of where you don't have sound or vision, is there any correlation between the questions that are being asked that you can't hear and the visions, if any, that you have as you're laying there with your imagination right. wandering? And when I put it on, it was just like I just dropped a huge tab of acid or something and I started having visions like a motherfucker just all this very intense stuff and uh, I would ha have the visionary things and I was talking explaining what they were um, what I was seeing and then there would be some that would come so fast that I would say I, I can't I can't it's, you know they happen too fast and then there would be a stretch that was, I could tell what it was. And then another bunch where they were too fast. And then there was a strip where I could tell another bunch because I did it a long time, like 45 minutes. Enough mm -hmm. that I could tell there was a pattern, you know, of visions that I could that I could articulate and ones that came too quick for me to be able to say much about what they were, or what they were about. Yeah. Um, and that was all real interesting. And there were some strange kind of paranormal conjunctions between the questions and my experience but when i woke up i or not woke up whenever i took the things off yeah. and uh i thought about it for a day or two what had happened i thought wait a minute this is just like the sustain pedal on the piano hmm. all you have to do to have visions it just press my sustain pedal down and it will be happening you don't have to put on headphones you don't have to put on anything at all and i tried it out painting i was like okay well, what happens if I just turn on that visionary sense while I'm painting? And uh, mm. what happened was I really couldn't see or tell what I was doing anymore. I mean, I could see that I was seeing something else. Um, and really, I just could then let the brush go, like automatic writing. I thought, oh, yeah. this is like Yates and his wife. You know, here I am. Yeah. I'm automatic painting. And the thought went through my mind, will anyone buy this? You know, if I do this shit, what's going to happen to my career? <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is what I need to be doing. Because anytime I have that feeling, that's like, mm. okay, no, you can't listen to those. Those voices are the ones that, you know, to head the other direction from. Whenever they start yeah. saying, you won't be able to sell it, people won't like you, then that, those are the frustrators that, like, keep you from, from being as creative as you could be um so i started doing that all the time that's the way i paint now i i truly kind of changed my my method of painting almost entirely i mean the skills that i used to do it are the ones i developed through all the years that i i painted using my eyes to see 
Um, and now I'm kind of using my mind to see, mm -hmm. I guess, and letting the kinetic uh, abilities that I developed handle all of these other things. So it it's very it's very different. It's very strange. It can be tricky to get yourself in the right place at the right time for it to happen. Mm -hmm. I have done it in front of people though, so I was like, "Hey, you've been." in the theater performing or directing for years now what is your problem i mean <laughs> go ahead and go completely and i am a trance singer so i've had that experience of yeah. of of being seen and being away you know not present really in the in the space and not able to see what's going on around me when it's happening and it is very vulnerable it's a different kind of singing it's not like performing it's not like being a rock yeah singer or a jazz right. singer or something where you're presenting yourself you know you're not presenting yourself you're going into some kind of a trance state and becoming incredibly vulnerable mm. yeah uh, just from survival point of view because you're not aware of what people are doing or what they're saying or if they've suddenly got knives and they're all around you I mean, yeah. the way i sing that could happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, real some real changes actually in my work, mm. and I'm real happy. That's exciting, you know. I'm excited yeah. to explore that and see what's going to happen with it. Yeah. And I'm feeling obviously feeling freer to talk about it because I'm talking to you guys about it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not a, lot, not a lot of people ask me to do shop talk. I will tell you. <laughs> I won't shut up. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I relate a lot to to your process in terms of well, to, to a lot of what you've been saying in terms of. So it's it's really it's nice to hear it uh, articulated so well because I, I see some really familiar kind of impulses. It's really cool. Well, I'm I am working as hard as I can to try to figure out. Um, how to put some of these experiences into words, and I guess there's a, um, words and everything, all of the whatever artistic media will help to make it clear. And you know, if there is a, a sense of sharing or communication, um, art is a form of communication, whether or not it's a, whether or not it's direct and immediate or delayed. You know, whether. Yeah. It, it's still an effort to to communicate something even if you're even if your artistic process says no i'm just communicating to myself you've still already yeah. split into two so right. um, so it might as well be yeah. everybody but i do think that um if i'm having these kinds of experiences and i have developed the peculiar skills to put them into a tangible form then there's probably lots of people who have had the experiences but have not obsessed about the English language or about linguistics and languages, period, the way I have. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> like super nerding out on it. So so maybe it is helpful in that sense, you know. I, I'm amazed that anyone recognizes anything in it in some way, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I know the, the feeling of that. I think... Um... <laughs> Have you, I mean, I guess I didn't, I didn't look into it well enough, um, but have you done any like sort of, I know that you said you had the opera and the operas performed. Have you like thought about uh, 
Is it archived in any way? Is sort of what I'm asking. Oh God. <laughs> well, um, yes and no, in the most horrible way. I mean, there are <clears throat> there are here in Dandyland somewhere. There's a box full of this kind of media, and somewhere there's a drawer full of that kind of media. All of the operas were documented in some ways, not always satisfactory to me, but yeah. uh, <clears throat> there are documents that are made of the things, but not maybe what I would consider fully realized forms of the things. Yeah. Um, so because I made the choice to, to try to do this through diversity of media, rather than focusing on just doing it by embroidery, <laughs> yeah, that would have been something. <laughs> yeah, that would have. Um, it has made it has made uh, it's made the documentation part of it really ragged. I'll say that. Um, yeah, and I, I, maybe there's not another way that that can happen. I mean, I have there. Are, I have friends uh, that are making some effort to try to. There have always been people who have been trying to help document the processes and I can't do it obviously because it's a full-time job mm. to do it right. whereas I'm trying to make it in the first place so that all this winds up being uh, something I can uh, give myself a hard time about basically <laughs> but you know you're a you're a lousy documentarian <laughs> and how do you expect anybody to understand it if you don't have the documents to show what it is but they the things have existed for a time in um space and that's all, that's really i think what is kind of essential when you begin to work in art especially <clears throat> in forms like dance or sculpture both of them have peculiarities of endurance about them. Like dance is so ephemeral that it's impossible to capture anything at all about it, you know, right. outside of the direct experience of it. Mm. Um, videos of it are not it. Right. Descriptions of it are not it. Um, but only being in the space where it's happening is it. Versus sculpture, which is not necessarily this, but it's typically thought of as having endurance. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's make a, a stone version of the Pharaoh and it, like Osmandias <laughs> will last, yeah. last, you know, for um, eternity or at least for a long, long, long time. Mm -hmm. When you're selling <laughs> art, that is like been a huge issue to me because mm. uh, I always thought, am I, what am I doing whenever I'm I'm selling this to other people. Am I selling them a pig and a poke? Because as I would begin to learn about painting, the so-called old masters were much concerned with things lasting. Mm. Mm. They made paintings so that they would last because the people who were getting them from them were determined to last. Their legacies were gonna last, you know. They their their great 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 grandson would be king right or yeah. pope or something or another so th there's this idea of endurance built into the objects but when you begin to work with art and by the time i got to the tea ceremony especially as part of my training 
ephemerality becomes the theme of the day. It's it, and you see things made of solid stone just slipping away, you right. know, away, away yeah. the eons of time. And so um, I think, you know, uh, as they call it in the biz, a body of work that an artist creates, um, it has a certain residual flow to it or impact think about it as being like a a hulking a hulking spaceship that is like you know resting in parts of it or whatever but it's so huge and it just keeps traveling through the space-time continuum in part because of its huge bulk mm -hmm. uh, uh, i kind of that idea kind of developed for me whenever i built my first website because i went into the digital world pretty quick as quick as i could I really did. There was a point I was unsure whether the route forward was supposed to be into composing opera or designing video games. Hmm. And I thought, oh, I really don't like games, you know. Um, but I saw that as a as a medium that was that was going to occupy a huge part of the human consciousness in times to come. This was when video games first came, you know, and they were like Pac-Man and stuff like that. They were real crude. Yeah. There was computers that you could compose, use to compose with, but they were so laborious and slow. You know, you had to like type in 24 for a quarter note, and 28 for a, it's like real slow kind of going. And, uh, but the first website I started with, uh, a web TV, not even a computer, but just an <laughs> interface into the internet. And I just kept archiving each generation of the website into a archive in the newest site until I had this thing. There were, there were pages or photographs in there that had more data than a whole, you know, a hundred websites have today in them. They're like one photograph was like a million zillion megabits because I didn't reduce <laughs> files and I didn't do things efficiently. And it really kind of worked in a weird way because if you, I think it's still even true, even though I, I let my website expire and evaporate into thin air, all of these years just vanished all at once at a certain point. Mm -hmm. uh, but even still the search engines find me instantly, even from the echoed memory of this <laughs> bulking impractical thing that I had made and created. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of feel like that um, the documentation is not everything I would like to have. And I wish that there were ways that people could experience pieces like the fawn um, mm -hmm. in a more direct way. Nathan and I are working on that. We were working on virtual reality version of it. So mm -hmm. you put on like a head, headset, you know, and you have this, like strange dance experience or physical experience putting it on and we started working on it. He's such a nut. Um, <laughs> yeah, I go over to his house and he had gotten the head thing, you know, and I had put it on and, and tried it one point in time before and had learned how to get your claws to work in it and to physically feel like you're doing because I was going to be creating this thing in the realm. He was like, I went over to his house. He was like, here, put this on. Don't freak out. 
they, I put it on and I'm in a helicopter and I turn around to try to turn around and step out of the helicopter into the air by the side of it. And I was like, fell over onto the bookcase, you know, first go all of a sudden. I'm like, God, Nathan. <laughs> so uh, we're trying to create the font in a digital form that people would be able to be very deeply immersed into it. Maybe not as deep as the dancers that worked with me where we had eight months of like phys physical immersion in the process so that you literally change your body mm. uh, in order to have the experience of doing the thing yeah. itself. Um, I'd love to be able to share with other people that process, which was, I think, not only really fabulous and fascinating and certainly plunged me into the cult of pan to a, like an extreme level yeah. Uh, but also was very healthy in so many ways mm -hmm. you know the the only kind of iffy part about maybe all of the pieces i've worked on is their utopian quotient that they have the the two dancers who did the fawn with me both of them once they talked about it later they both agreed that they preferred being inside the gauze box the gauze cube that we used to contain the fawn they preferred being in there than they did being outside in the world hmm. huh. um that's a strange thing to realize you know that you can create a kind of alternative reality that people yeah. will view it in a utopian way hmm. um and then what do you i mean what do you do with that is that a call i mean should i be like, trying to train everyone that I can Maybe, yeah. do something which basically in the case of pain is about like being okay about fucking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. whether you're doing it or not doing it whether you're in the two states of pain one where things are moving too fast and you panic mm. one where they're moving too slow and you're horny <laughs> you know yeah, so you've got like, these different time continuum experiences that are that are the nature of, of beating pain and learning about that thing right <laughs> have, have you read have you read um uh crombie the, the that writer crombie his uh encounters with pan um he, he wrote encounters with nature spirits are ogilvy crombie um, oh no i don't think so i should yeah, he's a. Uh, it's really yeah, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll send you a a link to it or something on Facebook or something. But um, yeah, yeah, he's talking. He talks a lot about the two aspects of Pan. That's what that, that reminds me of that a lot. It's fascinating. Yeah, that's um. People don't often think about the panic mm -hmm. side right. mm -hmm. of the yeah. one. You right. know, yeah, it was so strange in many ways to have Nathan pursuing this particular subject during the time of the pandemic i mean that wasn't yeah. lost on mm -hmm. on me either that right, piece, yeah. whenever it, it first came out it just caused so much trouble and seemed like it was going to endlessly cause trouble mm. telling that story um on penny royal about it seemed like oh so edgy you know because um uh, it is about a real place and it was about meeting uh person who turned out to be a real person after the fact but i don't think was a real person when i met them <laughs> right yeah you know 
So, I mean, all that is yeah. like ethically, it's ethically challenging. I have found right. usually the, the stories that I have that go into the realm of those things almost always come with some ethical problem attached to them. They're either just sure. stories that you, you know, where somebody else is going to lose some privacy or lose something if you do the telling of it. It's yes. like the sacrificing doesn't stop with you, you know, you're dragging other right. people in to sacrifice whether they want to or don't want to. And right, that's it's not, contagious. That isn't, yeah, that isn't really, um, it's not really ethical either. Um, but right. one, of the, one of the things that being an artist will get you come to terms with, you're not going to be ethical every day. Right. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, especially when it's it's so local, because uh, the whole Penny Royal thing, it's so, it was such a sort of a local thing. I guess yeah, it must have brought like neighbors like kind of into it. Mm, yeah, I mean, um, well, you know, I'm in luck here because I in Somerset. I remember this is way way back. It's when I was in my twenties. Um, already by that point in time, I was downtown and I happened to sit down on the square for some reason waiting for someone on a bench like a park bench there sometimes it's a small town you know um and uh there were two ladies that were there and they were I I started eavesdropping on them listening to their conversation which I love to to listen to other people's conversations and um they were talking about me they were talking about (laughs) You know, and they just knew all about me. And they had, this is what they had written in the newspaper. They didn't know me, nor did they know that I was, did they have a clue I was sitting on the bench with them. But because I was a fixture of the town, you know, something which was written about it in the newspaper again and again. And people, I think in small towns, especially whenever they find out that you have some measure of what seems like fame in another, in the world outside of the, in bigger towns, in bigger cities, yeah. that you've made it or that you've become a famous artist. You know, it never seems famous enough for me. Like, <laughs> like, like why, why am I not, why isn't the marquee bigger than this? You know, why is yeah. it back here in this swamp with these little fairy lights on it? <laughs> I would never say that because I would love that the best, but um, so. <laughs> Um, it, once you become uh, an eccentric or, or uh, once you become one of those things, a fantasy being that's created in media one way or another, then that isn't even you anymore. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a create, once again, it's a created being. And I think yeah. now that most people here just think, well, those artists, you know, they, they assume that that no matter what I say or what I do, that it's like that's just part of what artists do. So it's not maybe as directly confrontational to their ideas about reality as it would be if I was just I was just like talking about it. At, I don't know what downtown or something with the going around with the sign, <laughs> 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 saying uh, you know. One of my uh, slogans about, um, I did some 
art, pan art during the time that I was doing it. Um, oh God, there were things that happened during that time that were so strange. But um, I, I made some things in that, that did have slogans on them. One was pan bliss our troops. This was during the Gulf War that I was working on it. And so it was, I had done this, um, I did three watercolors that um, were things that were like a devotion to pan. And wow. Okay, let's back up. Um, one of the things I did while I was working on that, I was new to the idea of online dating or hitching, hooking up with people on using the internet to do it. You know, I was visiting an artist friend in Seattle, and uh, and I said, you know, I was thinking I might go out on the town tonight, and I said, you know, what's the chances of of you know hooking up with someone and getting a date in this town he was like oh not so good i don't think really he said uh you know it's kind of the same reason we don't have much violent crime here no one meets anyone face to face we do everything online (laughs) so um anyways i i thought well you should find out about these things how are you going to know what the world is if you don't understand these things so um I joined some online dating sites. I thought, okay, well, this is research for work, right? It's like watching porn. That's research for work. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm doing research for work. But at the same time, you know, I don't get out that much. It would be good. You know, I need to socialize more. So be serious I and mean, do this right. Don't be, you know, it's not some art project. It's not like Laurie Anderson's thing where she said, her boyfriend said, hey, are you talking to me or are you just doing another one of those art projects? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I was trying to be sincere. So I signed up to these things and uh, wow, I had amazing experiences with them. They were good for the fun thing. I think maybe the one I enjoyed the best, which I had maybe the, the uh, really interesting side effect was one where you just typed. It was like typing sex. Um, that yeah. you did. and you never saw the person and you didn't want to see them actually, you know, that was not the point. I guess you could, right, but sure. it was instead entirely a typed fantasy and I can type real well. So I thought, <laughs> wow, you're a writer. I'm a writer too. So I can figure out what gets this person off. I'll get the subtle clues and I'll say exactly what it is, you know, plus I'll write it fabulously well. But not, but not so that it looks prissy or fancy riding either. If it's supposed to be a cowboy, <laughs> I'm gonna make it really seem like a cowboy's riding. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, that was great for my riding skills. I did a lot. Sure. I did a lot of riding fantasies, responding to other people, you know, and riding, causing their fantasy to take a tangible form in the form right. of, a, of like a kind of digital succubus or something <laughs> yeah yeah i was a digital succubus <laughs> <laughs> so that was great yeah. but um one of the crazy or ones was the real vanilla fudge one matchmaker.com and yeah. i wound up having this real strange experience through that it was just really bizarre and it had to do with a, a gulf war veteran too someone who come back from the gulf war and I was working on the pan, this pan project at the time, trying to visualize it. And I thought, all right, uh, 
I need a model. I mean, you know, this is supposed to be like the perfect phallus or whatever, Pam. It's like, this right. is like supposed to be the perfect dick. Uh, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's like yeah the, at least big. Yeah. I mean, something. Let's, you know, yeah. he's, he's, the, he's the god of horniness. So true. Yeah. Um, so, I, and, you know, I had done some paintings and drawings of Pan early on, and it was my nephew came to visit. He was like, he was an art historian. He was like, where are the directions? You know, I was like, oh, God, you're right. But that's like the one thing you can't show in a art gallery or an art museum, you know, without mm. becoming, uh, uh, I don't know, like you become a, uh, a gay artist immediately. Mm. Not that I have a problem with that or with anything else. I don't like labels. So, you know, I wouldn't like that. I wouldn't, I didn't want that framework to be the framework I was in or into this work yeah. for. So I went online and I was hunting to see, I, I searched for the perfect phallus and I found this strange <clears throat> website run by this um, sort of Camille Paglio wannabe, uh, <laughs> like a right winger, you know, sort of like a right wing art historian who had this thing called the perfect phallus. And she, <laughs> she had guys send in pictures of their erect phallus and then she would come up with some hoity-toity art thing to to paste on with them and write an essay about it all and have these pictures in, intermingled in with it. It was the, one of the weirdest um, dick pic sites that I've ever <laughs> And not only that, some of the people obviously were exhibitionists who were sending material to the thing. So they actually even had their email address attached <laughs> to it because, you know, they were wanting to find the voyeurs who wanted to see what they wanted to show. So I looked, looking at the perfect phallus, there was one that was like the fawn, <laughs> you know, that's what it was called. Mm -hmm. So I was like, looked at this picture of this guy and read her thing, which was about fawns in art history, which I had already assembled far more than she could have dreamed about that part of the project. Yeah. Um, but this, this guy was uh, well endowed and seemed to have all of the qualities that would make him fawnish. And so I emailed him and asked him if he would be a model for this art project that I was doing called the fawn. And I needed, you know, this, I needed a, I needed a dick model for it. And would he be a model? And this guy was an Arab um, guy who uh, was in going to art school, studying photography and was being an exhibitionist on the down low while he was doing this. And so it's a match made in heaven, really. You know, he was kind of artsily wanting to be looked at, and I was artsily wanting to look. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did these, I did these watercolors, um, and I made the, I made the phallus like a red, like, like an American flag. I just put, I just painted the design onto the phallus as though it were printed on there, and then put slogans on it like "Pan bless our troops," you know, with a with a pink ribbon <laughs> tied around the phallus, you know, around like the yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. But this time, of that. or um, one with the phallus going through uh, the earth seen from space, like penetrate the earth. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it really wasn't a statement on American imperialism either, but you can take it that way, I guess. But um, it turned out during the Gulf War, it just seemed ironic that the only patriotic art that I've ever done were devotions to Pan of of flag phalluses and that it was an Arab model who provided the foundation for it all. Yeah. You see what I'm saying about how much, what it takes for my art to come together? Right, it, exactly. It right. takes some really strange convergences sometimes. So how yeah. oh, to share that with the rest of the world? I mean, that's a story that some of my friends have heard, but it's the first time I've told it in public. That's hilarious. That's, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's great. <laughs> Can yeah. you guys read that? I have to pee really yeah. badly. No, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, All right. Yeah, I think. Uh, wow, that's a that's a hilarious story, and that that's like a great anecdote of of the the total art again, living the art. Um, yeah. The, the process. <laughs> um, so maybe we can wrap up there, but uh, where where can we direct people to find your work? I know it's kind of scattered in a a bunch uh, of different. Well, settings. I mean. I really feel bad that the websites I had at one time three that were up one that which was huge kind of a general archive and, and uh, one that had been especially made for Aunt Lou the sort of like witch lore side of the mm. spectrum and um, then one for the sculpture studio as well but um, we take them down but we have one for the sculpture studio that's going back up um outside of that i guess you know you just sort of have to meander around it's odd like there's some um university or educational websites where that they are have one thing or another about what i do there's some folk folk life things or folk music things that have been done about uh ah, you know it's just kind of scattered all over i wish i could say more probably and facebook is the only form of social media i'm doing right now you know it's mm. like yeah it's a strange kind of it, it's strange it's great but it's it is strange um kind of way so i don't know maybe that's for people who are interested maybe that's the one of the best ways it's just to, would be just to shoot me a line on facebook until we'll have that website going within the next week or so so yeah. um and it's yeah. got contacts in it from that and um you know, beyond that, we're, we're, I'm trying to do more very soon. I'm trying to get together um, uh, the mass of poems that I wrote mm. over the years and put them into something like a, a book form, a digital book form or a book form. And that might yeah. seem to be uh, not all that exciting of a thing, like, okay, a bunch of poems. But really, I think for people who are interested, especially in the maybe the paranormal aspect of things are these oftentimes yeah. poem is the way that i will most quickly try to put it into this experience sure. yeah. some shareable form real, yeah. real believer um i had some help on the ballad project from a, a mongolian scholar who is an expert in the in shamanism there in the country where that word actually is legit um yeah and um he said that experiences of the supernatural um are or the numinous are they do not um they're not complete until we give them a traditional form mm. 
and that's a way of saying you have to at least make them into sentences. Mm, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, they've got to, you've got to give form to them in one way or another. And a lot of times for me, a poem is because you can put so many trajectories into a one word into a poem. It can be a way sure. to encode a lot of information in a, in a small chunk. So I'm hoping I'll get those up this fall. So, I mean, maybe the best thing to say is he's been very lax. <laughs> yeah, that's, catches up soon. Uh, that sounds really yeah. exciting, though. I look forward to that yeah. uh, coming into form. And also, um, is the is the Patreon for Dandelion a good resource as well? Um, it, it would be if I do anything on it, and I need to go on it. Heavens, those people give money for it, but generally, uh, you know, there are people who are on Facebook, so they wind up seeing it there. And uh, so, no, that's great. If anyone wants to give money to the cause, then they're welcome to pour all the sand down that sinkhole that they want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thompson Smiley, my opera mentor, said, There's never enough time or money to make an opera. And that <laughs> is so right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I do burn money like, it's like, like kindling uh, in the stove. And so that would be great. But, um, you know, I, I think if people, if they, if they make an effort to reach out, I like to communicate with people um, online to the extent that I can, mm. you know, to the extent that I can apply enough time to it to do it justice because yeah. i think it's really important for us to have articulate conversations and discourse people think about science there's a lot of talk about science these days but science is a conversation mm -hmm. the discourse yeah. that's had between inquiring minds it's not a compendium of facts it's a process yeah. that we engage in and yeah. so the process of discovery and the process of art moving forward is partly communication. And hey, this is great. I mean, we're able to do it at a distance here, right? right. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. um, nice. Yeah, I think people will totally appreciate that too. That uh, the Facebook reference, you know, is a firsthand way to reach out and see so many of the great images and and stuff you're putting on there too, like the paintings, the earthworks, the sculptures, um, just, I, I think there's, there's, it's, it is a good resource to really check out what you're up to. The, yeah. the high art monkey muck <laughs> art galleries do not like that. I mean, I, there, there's a coming to terms in the art world with this new, with the new reality that more art is sold digitally than is sold in on real estate. And so right. it's shift, like shifting of powers that are taking place here. But the idea that there is a, that there's a huge audience now for art in a way that there never was in the past is what really intrigues me. It causes me to choose Facebook. It's just like kind of the thing that everybody could do. Maybe it's not the hippest thing to do, but anyone and everyone can do it. And, mm. you know, it's been amazing to me to see how many people they that have bought work of mine that have never bought art in their life. It's mm. the first thing that they have ever bought. The first time they ever even thought about it, they either assume they couldn't possibly afford it, you know, mm. which is generally the case with, with like the New York city galleries. No, who can afford an $895,000 painting? That's mm -hmm. the low, end, you know, of right. most of my friends can't. Um, and, some of the people who have the most moving and real experiences to the art are, you know, that at least their feedback to me has been some of the most interesting and some of the most satisfying 
that I've had have been people who maybe don't even buy anything at all, hmm. but they just love it on Facebook right. and it, it causes them to think of things and to share things with me that make me realize that, oh, this, this stuff is working. You know, yeah. it's not yeah. it's not flim flam. It is in fact making its way into someone else's consciousness and providing them with some kind of stepping stone or something in the making of their own mythologies and the making of their own stories and things uh, can wind up being a good provider and mm -hmm. like some kind of a, what was I, I I saw a conversation people were having online in a site about me because of the of the penny royal thing and i was just reading it you know they're like <laughs> the two ladies on the bitch they're talking about me and these were saying he's like the new gandalf and i was like oh god <laughs> you know pointing hat and a, and a cloak you know oh, i started to do that before i did this interview with y'all i was like nathan had this purple robe that we did this bogus thing i could put that on in some kind of pointy hat <laughs> that's hilarious <Yeah. laughs> Well, I yeah, I can certainly say that, that is true though, and your and your work is is reaching a lot of people now, and and that's really incredible to see. Um, we thank you so much for coming on and joining yeah. us. These stories are oh, incredible. Great. Yeah, uh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's great talking to you all. I look forward yeah. to getting to listen to it back. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope. Yeah, oh, I can go. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, we'll hope Pan doesn't go in and erase it all, you know. Oh, hopefully no one will be calling me up saying, I thought you were a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate you guys. Uh, well, thank yeah. you so much yeah, again. Thank you. Yeah, this was a blast. Okay, great. Cool.